it's time to get a load of the Big D, a podcast about divorce. Younger generations, well, we aren't approaching marriage in a traditional way, so why should we approach divorce in a traditional way? It's a serious topic, but we don't take it too seriously over here. I am your host, Miranda, married and divorced before age 30. Well, actually, I've been saying that, but my divorce just got officially, officially signed, sealed, delivered. Doom, 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 doom. Oh, baby, here I am. You know how it goes. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm not yours. Something like that. This week, we're on a break from the separated sibling segment while Graham and I plan for the next series. In the meantime, send along questions for the next round through Instagram, DM, our Google form, or a voice note on Anchor. Both are linked in the Instagram bio, at Big D Pod. Speaking of siblings, in this week's episode, I talk to Lori Stein. She's a collaborative mediator. She negotiates parenting agreements outside of the courts, which I didn't even think was an option, to be honest. After we get through the bread and butter of the work she does, we talk about staying in it for the kids, gender roles, the pandemic, and really do a swan dive right into chatting about unmet emotional needs and relationships, how divorce can bring up all your past trauma, and how the courtroom is like a shredding floor. To be honest, I was a little surprised by how critical she was, but I was totally down for the conversation since I'm an abolitionist and always ready to add a slight political edge to a conversation about breakups. And as per usual, it's a frank conversation. Just like the brand you've come to know and love, know and love, but don't break up with me. This is the first in a short series on breaking up and co-parenting. I don't have kids myself, but I have friends who are parents, and I love their kids just as much as I love them. I've always been intellectually curious about parenting. I think learning about parenting and the choices parents make teaches us a lot about ourselves, what we value, patterns in our own behavior that we adopted from our parents. I'm also so curious about the question as to when someone decides to leave the factors that play into the decision, how we each have that threshold, but it's different for each of us, unique to the person, to the relationship. And kids are another layer in that. And kids are everything. Having kids is an act of hope, primarily, I think. But breaking up is hard to do. As Lori says, Settle into one of the worst days of your life. (laughs) There is so much to dive into here. Lori was incredible to interview, so compelling and passionate about her work, I could have asked her questions for hours. Lori is an LLB, MSW, RSW, ACP. That one stands for Accredited Advanced Collaborative Professional. You know she's official with all those letters, but even more so after you hear what she has to say. Lori is a child, youth, individual, and family therapist, mediator, and family professional. In collaborative family law, she works closely with clients and lawyers, both in individual and joint meetings, integrating semi-therapeutic and strategic and narrative approaches. As well, she works with parents to create a parenting plan, discuss parenting and child adjustment, and facilitates larger team meetings. 
Lori has trained widely in the Ontario Collaborative Community and is a trainer with multiple training teams and partners, including the Toronto Collaborative Training Team, and is a faculty member with the IACP, International Academy of Collaborative Professionals. Lori has 31 years of clinical experience working with families, children, and teens in treatment and mental health settings and private practice. And she's going to tell you herself a little bit more about her journey into getting in this very niche field. So a little bit about me. Um, uh, My kids are probably only slightly younger than you, Miranda. They are 24 and 26. I have two girls. Um, And I am um, I'm a social worker and a former and lapsed lawyer. Um, That was a long time ago. I haven't practiced law in 30 years. Um, And what led me here um, was I had started in the field of social work. um, And like a lot of young people, after having done a bachelor of social work, um, I wasn't really sure it was for me. And I I didn't know if if that was my route. And so like a lot lot of, um, you know, uh, undirected people, I went into law school. um, And then I became a children's lawyer for two years. And I realized that the legal system had no place in families' homes once families needed to change and or broke down. Um, And really what I wanted to do was not stand up in front of a judge and be part of that, you know, shredding system. I wanted to be on the floor with the puppets, with the children, which is how I started. And so I landed up going to uh, California and I had one of those kind of seminal experiences that changed my life. And I met Jen Johnson and back in the day, it's quite a while ago, she was the name along with um, Judith Wallerstein. Um, she was the name in divorce and I worked with her for two years in California and I came back to Canada and I brought a program with me. And, um, and then I did my master's of social work and then I put those two together and it served me really well all that time. And so um, I do a bunch of things in my practice. I'm a child and family and adolescent and individual therapist on one side. And on the other side, I'm a mediator as well as a collaborative family professional. So a collaborative family professional is a mental health professional that assists within the collaborative family law system, which is an alternative to the traditional um, knock them down, you know, drag them out uh, family law system. Um, and if you're curious about that, I can talk about that either now or later, whenever you want. Yeah. I, to be honest, I didn't even know that collaborative mediation existed mm-hmm. as an option, as an alternative to what I really only know as really intense court scenes about custody battles and movies. Like that's my, (laughs) that's my touch point for how these things are negotiated. What does a day in the life of Lori look like? Oh my. Okay. So, well, God help us. We're in zoom. So it's every hour on the hour, except for Mm -hmm. the two hour window when I walk my dog. Um, And uh, I have a tendency. Well, so I have a tendency to Seattle's in the morning hour after hours, I do a lot of therapy, right? And in the afternoon, uh, I see a lot of kids, of course, all on Zoom. Um, But I, uh, so that's my therapy practice. And woven in there, I will have mediation sessions, right? So um, I will meet with parents um, to 
design and craft a parenting plan that is particularly suited to this particular family. There's, there's a good mediator. There's no cookie cutter way of, of going about it, um, uh, nor should it be. Um, I also, in the collaborative family law system, so collaborative family law, as I said, is an alternative settlement-based um, uh, negotiation system where we work as a team together and I work with lawyers who are specially trained um, and I'm the mental health professional on the family. I take care of all the emotional needs of the family while they are negotiating um, their financial split as well as their children. And um, uh, a good mediator will tend to, well, any mediator really will tend to the emotional life of the family because that's what stands in the way of good settlement, right? So uh, as part of my day, I will be mediating with um, parents. I will be liaising with their lawyers and we will be crafting um, process where um, we connect to the family at a very value-based place to craft process for them as we go through it. So it is a far cry from the War of the Roses or Kramer versus Kramer or all those old movies that you might've seen and horrified you. That is the furthest thing um, from collaborative family law. So I, I wasn't necessarily expecting to hear you describe the formal court system as what do you say, like, like something like violent, like rock <laughs> the knockdown, drag them out. Yeah. yeah rock them, sock them yep. situation. So what would you say the root of the problem is with that system? Well, it sets uh, parents up in a, in a battle right? And they are battling for their children. They are battling um, for security, which is money, right? Um, and battling for security in a home. Um, there is almost, without exception, some unmet emotional need that is not being tended to by the legal system. And that is why, and, and when you hire a lawyer, and I'm going to say these are more Traditional lawyers, not the new brand. The new brand has, you know, God love you, Gen Xers, you know, you millennials, like you've got, you know, you've got a much more holistic way of looking at things. But the old way of doing things and the old way dies hard in the legal system is to be in, to, in battle and it's solidly litigation mode. When you are litigating, the lawyers have, they can be, um, positional, completely positional with, you know, and not really focusing on children's needs. What they're focusing on is their clients' positions. I want this, I need that. But not until we understand what the this or the that is, can we get to the heart of what this family really needs and can we address this family needs and move out of battle mode um, and into a discussion about how we're going to help you craft the world you need after separation. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that makes me so hopeful for people who are going through this to know that there is another option. Yeah. I think pointing out unmet emotional needs is really just like hitting the nail on the head. That makes complete sense. That's not a part of how the legal system is designed is not to consider that. So of course, um, and I'm glad that there is an alternate. Uh, for my friends and acquaintances that I would say are divorce curious, mm -hmm. um, 
it's such a cliche, but I've heard time and time again, people say, well, we're in it for the kids. And also they're concerned about having a child of divorce, like those tropes of kids who grow up and then can't commit to romantic relationships. How much do you think this plays a role in parents staying in bad relationships or not? I hear it on a daily, right? Um, And I think it is twofold. I think it is our fear of not being able to see what is possible for us beyond um, a relationship that is no longer functioning. I also, so that's the first thing on a personal level from the parental level. There is research that says that if you could pull it together as parents, and there's not a lot of overt conflict, um, and you are largely, you know, kind of hiding it from the kids. The kids do better in in those, but that's a very big if. So you've got to hide it from them. They are the smartest little things on the planet. We don't give them anywhere near the kind of credit they deserve for smelling it out. And the second part is um, that parents who stay in relationships that are not meeting their needs and or are on their way to abusive or are abusive are hurting deeply. And they actually, they, they can't stay. They can't stay and they don't stay. Uh, because eventually what happens is danger sets in, depression sets in, anxiety, poor work performance. People who are unhappy with unmet needs are, are not reaching their potential in any way, not as, a, not as a parent, not as a worker, not as a citizen. So those who are trying to stick it out for the sake of the kids, I think fail miserably in the end. I'm not here to sing the songs or the praises of divorce. I once had a dad who said to me, he couldn't work with me because I believed in divorce. <laughs> Nobody believes in divorce. Right? Like, no yeah. one walks down that aisle and says, that's an option for me. Right? Like, that's just not what we do. Um, of course. I do believe in, you know, if this has to happen to you, um, then let's create a system that doesn't shred the children and the entire family along the way. So let's, let's talk about the hard things we need to talk about, but let's do it in an environment that is open and that is not fear-based, but child-based, um, security-based, um, curious. You use the word curious, right? It's, it's the first thing I, I tell my clients is I'm going to be curious about your life. The whole lot of things I want to know about you, not what schedule you want for the children. Yes. That's how to, right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And um, I've done a lot of childcare in my life. I used to be a nanny back in the day. And you're you're very right. The children are so much more perceptive than we ever give them credit for. Um, What are some of the cues that kids pick up on when things aren't right in a relationship dynamic? The obvious um, when there's shouting and screaming and hollering and those kinds of things, it's just obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that we know we have decades of um, research behind that and how um, uh, damaging is to children. But children also pick up on uh, tension. And um, I talk to kids from four to 
you know, 54, 104, but um, I started them as, as young as four. Is, and I asked them, you know, what mommy thinks of daddy and what daddy thinks of mommy and what mommy thinks of mommy and what daddy thinks of daddy. And they always have an opinion and they're always able to tell me about how their parents are doing. Right. And so they pick up on tension. Uh, they, uh, they become protectors. Right. Mm. Um, they're astute in knowing who needs help. Um, and they begin these subtle alignments, right? And that's when the danger begins. I talked about danger. It wasn't really meaning um, necessarily domestic violence, um, yeah. personal violence, which is there and it's present. And, and that is something, of course, that children see and are desperately, terribly affected by. But there's a lot of subtle emotional dysregulation in families that children do pick up on, are deeply affected by, and repeat it, right? So they start to look like the kids who are dysregulated in school and they start to look like the kids who are doing the bullying or are bullied. They start to look like the kids who are um, irritated and angry and have um, unstoppable tantrums. So when we talk about staying for the kids in that context, doesn't that speak volumes, right? What are we doing? This is no protection of children. Yeah. So when you meet with parents going through a divorce to help mediate and create a parenting plan, what are the kinds of things that you discuss? I start all my mediations with talking about their values. Mm-hmm. I spend a solid mm-hmm. session understanding what matters to parents. That is the foundation upon which every parenting plan lies. And it will take a full session for sure. Um, and we revisit it. So that is the first thing that, you know, it'll come back again and again. I'll say, does that jive with the values that you discussed? You are now arguing about X, right? I hear that that is deeply important to you ver- versus something that a parent is saying. And, and a, you know, did you hear what she said? She's talking about something that she can't live without. So we talk about what matters. We, of course, talk about communication. It's the, the, the next biggest thing that we, we talk about. These parents have a long history of not communicating well for a million different reasons. So we get into that. Because I'm very emotional based in my, in my mediation, sometimes we talk about the end of marriage. Sometimes we talk about bad behavior, right? Like so far you haven't heard me mention not once where the kids are going to live, what we're going to do at Christmas time, because that's not where the work is, right? Parents come in thinking that's where the work is. They come in saying, I must have this amount of time or she needs to be supervised over or he's a drug addict or, you know, they come in with those, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which we do talk about. We talk yeah. about a substance abuse. We talk about Christmas. We talk about the children's schedule, of course, how they're going to go back and forth. But those are the how-to. Once we set the foundation, we can talk about your child's adjustment to what it is you think they need. And that's the other part that we talk about when we talk about, you know, holidays and and time spent, which is who are your children? What do they need? What are their special needs? What's particular about your child? What are the ages? You got a four-year-old and a a 19-year-old. They're fundamentally different, right? And they need something entirely different in terms of a schedule, right? In terms of how they're going to see their parents. How can parents protect their children from the instability? So I think parents really need to become acquainted with the fact 
that their needs are quite often diametrically opposed to children's needs. And that is a tough pill to swallow. So if you have been in a marriage that has been unsatisfying, emotionally dead or bereft, um, uh, if you have been gaslit, if you've been screamed at, uh, if you've been ignored, it is real. If you've been betrayed, it is really hard to look at your children and know that the greatest gift you could give your kids is the permission to figure out who they are in relation to the other parent, as well as you, and to stand back and let it happen. Right. Now, of course, I, I talk about safety all the time with parents. So when there are you know, significant safety concerns, we talk about them. But that is very different than saying, I am hurt, and therefore my children will be hurt by him, her. Um, when that is a reality, again, you know, if we're talking about various levels of abuse or addictions, yep, we've got to talk about it. We've got to be straight up about it. And we have to create safety plans. No question about it. We have to create boundaries and, and parameters around what's acceptable. All of that is important. But equally important in, um, um, in marriages where you yourself have been deeply hurt is to know that it is your children's task in life to have a relationship and that relationship is guided between the parent and the child. And we can't stand in the way of that, except for those extreme circumstances that I talked about. Otherwise, we are no longer attending to their developmental needs. I, I've been doing a lot of my own personally directed learning about trauma, intergenerational trauma. And it seems like this is one of those moments in a person's life where they can make conscious decisions to not pass those things on and do that work. So what, what kinds of tools or opportunities do you give to parents to think through some of those questions? Like I'm, I'm wondering, I'm okay. Here's, here's, so that's a question. And I have another question, which is, is this sometimes the first time that parents are confronting those kinds of traumas in their own life? So Miranda, I am so happy you raised the issue of trauma um, because I consider divorce to be a trauma. And there is no parent who has sat in my office who wouldn't agree with that. It fundamentally shakes your worldview of what you thought your life was going to look like and what you planned for your life. And you are sitting without exception in your shattered dreams. Even the ones who said, I walked down that aisle and I knew it was wrong. And yet she <laughs> still did it anyways, in yeah. the hopes that some miracle would happen or, you know, some change would occur or we would bond or you know, you know, insert, you know, specialized dreams. So um, divorce is a trauma and trauma begets trauma. So what I mean by that, the way loss begets loss is it, it um, unearths any previous trauma that you have experienced in the past. It's coming roaring back 
like the headless horseman into your room. And um, sometimes I'm able to deal with it in the mediation session. It's far more therapeutic than it is mediating. Um, and I have to say, I mean, many parents are engaged in that discussion with me. They want to have these discussions where, you know, somebody is railing about the betrayal by another parent and talks about what it was like for them uh, growing up when their mother or father did the betrayal and what mm -hmm. it was like in their home. And now they're repeating. And so there are, there are um, opportunities um, where I will stop the discussion about where the child is going to put, you know, where little, little you know, little Susie is going to put her head and say, you know, we really need to talk about what it means, you know, to you to have your child in your home because you told me previously what your home life was like and, and how that's coming roaring back and we will stop it and we will unpack it. At other times, um, I will identify for a client that this is a really big piece of work and I will refer them to their own therapist and say, you know, this is really private. We don't have to have your former partner sitting and listening to this. Um, I really think you should be provided with the opportunity to really unpack this and really explore it on your own. So just to give you an example, like I was sitting with a mom the other day and a dad, they were, they were in my Zoom room. And um, uh, she said, um, you know, I have discovered <laughs> that, you know, not only were you a disappointment in divorce, she says to him, but you have been a disappointment for 20 years, she lobs at him. And I sit back and I think about the depth of that statement, that she's sitting in loss and disappointment that isn't just two years old, the, you know, the, the age of the separation, but is her entire adult life. I was like, wow, just a minute. Let me take that in. You are talking about shattered dreams for your whole adult life. So I think that bears some discussion. And I'm gonna ask you with lots of love in my heart to reach out to a therapist to do that work, it's critical. It's critical that you do that work. Now, that work also really impacts the work that I do, right? Because yep. when she comes back and is able to talk to me and share with me about where she has parked it in that moment to be present in the mediation and make her best decisions, that's, you know, for me, like, you know, I've just, you know, I've just walked on the moon. Um, but then, of course, there are lots of other families, lots of other individuals who can't go there and they can't acknowledge their intergenerational trauma. They can't acknowledge that they're being traumatized in the moment. Mm. They don't see the pattern. And to be honest, those are the ones that um, are more likely to land up in the court system. Right? Because the trauma is unattended to and so what shows up instead is rage mm. and when you're angry and you need something want something deserve something you're in no place to be negotiating yeah right yeah I definitely identify with at least a part of that it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that my divorce was 
traumatizing. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Because in my mind, the divorce was the solution to the, the, the challenge, the struggle, the hardship, but the divorce itself is also traumatizing. That's, that is for sure. For yeah. Sure. Even if you chose it and that comes as a surprise to parents that even though they chose it, yep. they are sitting in significant trauma. I cannot begin to tell you how many files I settle. And then a month later, um, many women, less men, because they don't access therapy as much. Many women call me up and say, okay, so I have a separation agreement. That's good. I, you know, I need to talk about what happened, right? Right. And because 46% of Canadian families divorce, just because the number is so incredibly high and we have normalized it, doesn't mean it's not a trauma anymore. So what happens if parents can't agree on a parenting plan? 95% of parents settle. Hmm. 95. It's huge. It's huge. You settle. The other 5% go to court, right? And out of that 5%, 2% will settle on the, on the steps of court. And the other three go to trial, right? So it's a very low number. We move heaven and earth to get these parents to the finish line without going to court. Because you don't want an arbitrary judge making a decision for your, for your child. And you will not get your so-called, and I put in quotes, day in court. You will not, like, those those angry vicious emails and texts and phone calls and all those kinds of the judge does not care about any of that <laughs> judge cares about trying to you know create something reasonable that the child can live with right but mm-hmm. in terms of getting being heard and validated you are not getting that support system so <laughs> i learned that I learned that in my first two years of practice, my only two years of practice, right. I went screaming in the other direction. And that is my pitch for collaborative family law as well, which is, you know, if 97% is going to, is going to um, settle out of court, why wouldn't you do it in a process with such dignity? And that provides you with um, a, a safety net and a safe place to, you know, to fall, why wouldn't you use that system rather than going through the angry litigation system? Do you observe traditional gender roles in the ways that the parenting plans are negotiated between the parents? So I let the parents tell me um, about what occurred in their family. And there's um, two kinds of cultures the culture from your ancestors and where you're from and then your family culture, right? And they're equally important. And so I ask a million questions about those. How Mm. do you practice this? How do you do that, right? And I'm not gonna lie, the gender roles are are still um, alive and well in 2021. So women, do, I mean, if you look at StatsCan, right, we're still doing far more of the childcare work and the, and the labor work in the house, you know, the house cleaning, whatnot, including our jobs. Um, having said that, men and fatherhood has changed dramatically from when um, I first started to practice, you know, 32 years ago. 
fathers are involved. They care. They care deeply. They want to be involved. Um, they often do a great uphill climb in terms of their learning curve upon separation. And my parenting, you know, way back 32 years ago, the parenting plans were largely every other weekend and midweek, you know, for dads and, you know, moms um, that were doing the primary care. Now, um, you know, um, I haven't written a plan like that in I don't know how long. It's much more equitable. We have way more um, sharing of um, time and responsibility and actions in relation to our children. We have different family types that are now readily acknowledged, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so I am seeing all kinds of family configurations. And so I ask the questions about you tell me about your family and mm. there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how has the pandemic impacted parenting plans wow yeah so not gonna lie it was a, <laughs> it was a it was a shit show <laughs> at the beginning <laughs> um, it was um it was pretty horrific at the beginning when we were in lockdown so um and we had to negotiate um levels of health and safety that in every single family, right? Like I don't discuss addictions in every single family, nor do I have to talk, talk about child welfare in every different single family, but we had to talk about safety in every single family and uh, bubbles and who can be seen and what can be seen. So in the so it created another level of conflict and um, conflict um, is the single biggest predictor of child adjustment, right? So it was, pretty awful in some families. I also want to say that the pandemic has taught us a great deal about human nature and the goodness of each other and the goodness of Canadians. And I saw plenty of that. So parents hunkering down saying, okay, who's our bubble? Okay. I'm going to talk to you about that, you know, and uh, who do you see? And I will tell you who I see and no, I won't let my boyfriend slash girlfriend come over and, 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 and so I did see in the way that we all saw Canadians rise to the occasions. I did see wonderful families rising to the occasion, um, but it wasn't without its bumps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It also created some families uh, um, went back to live together. Uh, that was a disaster. Several of my families did that. Wow. The bubble. Yeah, that, that was crazy, crazy. Um, and that was dangerous for children. I think. So um, we saw people who held off on their divorces. So the conflict got worse. Mm. Um, yeah. Hey, listen, <laughs> pandemic has, it has tentacles. Yeah. I was chatting with my past couples therapist mm. and she was saying that a number of couples had kind of just pulled the ripcord on their marriage when the lockdown was announced and then they were stuck with their yeah. ex for a number of months and whew, Yes. I can't imagine. <laughs> yes. I've experienced that as well. Yeah. 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 So this is the last question. Mm -hmm. Many parents are afraid of having the talk mm -hmm. about divorce with their kids. Mm -hmm. I understand it would vary depending on age and circumstance, but do you have some key tips for these big conversations. Right. So settle into one of the worst days of your life. <laughs> Talk with your former partner about the story. 
you must have a story for the children. I know they are young and I know they are, uh, they do not need to be burdened um, uh, by the parents' um, innermost, you know, feelings about why they're separating, um, but they are entitled, they are, they are, they are, they are people and they are entitled to an understanding of what is happening in their lives. Um, and so you are never to blame the other. Uh, I've worked long and hard for some people, like sometimes we do the royal we, we have decided that we cannot live together. We have decided that, you know, our love has changed. In other families, um, somebody needs to take a bit more responsibility for doing the doing and for pulling the cord. And there are kind and compassionate ways to talk to children about that um, as well. So it creates an authenticity in the story as the parents tell their stories. Um, um, and the stories are, are um, um, they are narrow. Children should not be overburdened, right? Um, and the children are reminded a million times over that it isn't their fault and that no matter how many arguments they had over screen time, that isn't why this divorce is happening. Um, they need assurances that there are things in their life that will not change, as well as the things that will change. Um, and they and parents need to hold their children's grief during these conversations. And everyone cries. Everybody mm. cries. And we normalize it, right? And yeah. um, we, we sit with those feelings and we allow it to unfold. And the children will ask questions over time. And so it's, it's not the only conversation, right? Just like with parenting, you get another kick at the can about a thousand times over uh, because children raise, um, uh, raise all kinds of stuff at all kinds of stages of their lives. So calm, quiet, you've got your story. There is no blaming. And we hold the child in their grief and in our grief too. Mm-hmm. Okay, I do have a follow-up question. Okay. <laughs> um, do you have time? Yeah, sure. Okay. I am thinking about that that trope of a, a child of divorce. Um, a number of my friends who are adults and have been adults for a long time now do identify their parents' divorce as traumatic and as continuing to still impact the way that they operate in romantic relationships. Do you see that playing out in the parents that you work with? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So the, I'm going to guess that your friends who are not just struggling with a bad thing that happened to them, which is the divorce or a sad thing, right? Because we can't protect children from everything, right? Grandparents die, parents die, dogs die, uh, best friends move away. We like bad things happen, right? And that is absolutely part of what forms our personalities. That is not what ails your friends that you are talking about, because um, that is, it is how the family responded to the divorce and what happened. So trauma, like Gabor Mate um, talks about trauma. He's just, you know, he's just, he's my goddess. Um, you know, he talks about trauma uh, not having been done to you, but it's the reaction about what happened to you, right? And so when you have witnessed your parents battling it out, 
Christmas is being awful, um, you know, new partners um, uh, being introduced too early or too intrusive, or, you know, I, I, I could mention a million other mistakes that parents make in the middle of a divorce. Those are the things um, that fundamentally affect young people as they move into their, um, their own relationships. If the model of divorce is one of, we are sad, we couldn't make this um, a go for you, but the milestones in your life and the important things in your life and how we attend to you and the important things in your life are solid and they're whole and they're good. We have been there during your graduations. We went to your your um, con your uh, concerts. Uh, we acknowledged, uh, we allowed somebody in the house when they got their wisdom teeth out and we acknowledged that, you know, um, your ex had to come in the house to, you know, to, to, to deliver the ice cream and, and, and to show you that there is healing after divorce and there's a model and a way of working in the world that isn't full of hate and regret and betrayal, those things are the things that we pass on to our young adults. Mm. That's the stuff I suspect your young friends are grappling with. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. Um, I'm really excited because I think the, the final episode of this first season, I'm going to be interviewing my friend's parents who were separated and divorced for eight years and then got back together. Oh my God. They're one in a million. Just, you know, Miranda. Oh my God. Please do the stats on that. They're one in a million. I will. I will. It's, it's not going to be like, this could be you. Uh, it's right. a, a wild, it's a wild story. Right. Um, right. Definitely, a, definitely a unique one. Yeah. Okay. Lori, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I have so much to think about, and I'm sure the listeners will um, agree that this was a very rich conversation. Uh, where can people find out more about your practice? So I'm in private practice, and Connections um, Child and Family is uh, the name of my practice, and um, uh, and you can you can Google me. Amazing. <laughs> I will share the link to your website um, in the description of the episode. Okay. Yeah. Thank you okay. For having me. Yeah. Thanks, Lori. All righty, Lildies. Thanks for listening. Next episode continues with more personal breakup stories and what it's been like to co-parent through a breakup and the pandemic. Okay, lean in. Can you do me a favor? I'm thinking that since you're a listener, you're vibing to the podcast, vibing with me. So would you share it with three friends, lovers, or exes? Listen, join me over on Instagram at Big D Pod. Subscribe, finger that like button, and share. Share it, please. Save it. Forward it. Original music was written, composed, and performed by the award-winning singer, Posey. My God, it gets stuck in my head every time I edit. Thanks to my secret producer, you know who you are. 
This podcast is written, edited, sound foley, sound mixing, public relations, etc. by me, Miranda. So that means you may not get episodes on a perfect schedule. Thanks for your patience. I'm also sick right now, and that is why you may not be experiencing the smooth, dulcet tones that you are so usually blessed with. And of course, thanks to all my friends who believed I could and can, so I did and I do.